Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fun Caliber. Today, we're discussing value investing, UK M&A activity, and our guest explains the importance of what he calls the Seju ratio when assessing a company's management teams. Hello, and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm James Yardley, and today I'm joined by Alex Savides, the elite rated manager of the JOHCM UK Dynamic Fund. Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, James. Good morning, and thank you very much for having me. Alex, um, it seems like value is not dead after all. Um, it's had a great six months or so. Uh, did you ever sort of lose faith in the value style of investing? Uh, and can this strong run continue? Um, did we ever lose faith? It's difficult not to when you have such uh, major headwinds to, to the style. But I think the first thing to say uh, for us on UK Dynamic is that whilst value is a sort of uh, a, a slight tailwind to this funds process, it doesn't define the process. Um, we've always said that sort of we're more than just value. So while we pick from a what you might describe a value cohort of stocks, um, there always has to be a little bit more going on. We're very focused on businesses. I think you know, James, that, that are transformed forming um, their operations, so new management, strategic change. Um, you know, at the point of time that we buy them, they might be perceived to be uh, value in their sort of um, valuations, price to book valuation, dividend yield calculation, uh, PE rating. Um, to us, we're not just hopeful that there'll be a um, a change in external perception over value as a style, and maybe a company goes from a seven times PE to a ten times PE, yield of six down to a yield of five, whatever. Um, we want we want any change in the valuation movement to be based on what the company have done, um, you know, operationally, strategically, etc., um, to make the wider stock market and the investor base think that it's a, a more worthy um, business. Now, um, that doesn't. You know that that that's easier to easier in an environment where people are willing to embrace um, a different subset of companies that are deemed to be more value oriented. Um, you know, maybe have been around for a lot longer, um, and so it does help that the style comes back. Um, just you know, philosophically, um, well, you know, did was value investing ever likely to disappear? Um, I don't think so. Um, you know, I think the laws of, of sort of, you know, financial theory and, and sort of common sense will always prevail, prevail a, a company that's trading at a discount to its net assets where, you know, it has a viable and vibrant future where it can continue to earn a decent return on those assets uh, will always be attractive to investors. And that will never change, really. We might go through different preferential styles. I'd prefer growth or, or, or momentum. Um, but fundamentally, the laws of common sense say that if something's overvalued, you sell it. If something's undervalued, you buy it. Um, <laughs> and it should all start there. Um, and I think valuation will always matter. I hope it will. And the types of companies you buy, I mean, they they aren't really the exciting ones. I don't know if that's if you agree with that, if that's fair or not, but... They excite us, James. They excite us, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe not the wider public. Yeah, but you're you're not likely to invest in something like Tesla soon. I mean, I think instead you're more likely to invest in something like Centrica, for example. So, what is it which yeah. sort of catches your eye with these companies? Um, 
Yeah, look, that's fair. Um, you know, you, you you say exciting, and you know these companies can be exciting. Um, you know, but but they can also be very dangerous, as you're seeing at the moment um, with some of the valuation movements. Um, and again, I'm drawn to use the word valuation. Um, it's very important that we don't get overexcited and over emotional about our asset allocation decisions that we take. You know, it might be very alluring to buy something that that's growing at X or Y, but if the valuation is expecting a, a growth rate of Z for a longer long period of time that is rational a longer period of time than it's rash, than is rational then you know that's a risky asset to invest in so you know we we are drawn to companies that have a history have a track record um have uh, a long set of uh, financial reports that we can draw on to sort of gather evidence about the qualities of the company, its inherent qualities, um, its inherent market position, the inherent demand for the products over many cycles, many different um, external economic environments. And I think that that counts for a lot. I think um, it's understated nowadays um, in the way that that maybe some newer investors think about how to allocate capital. Um, so, you know, maybe less exciting on the face of it, but in the potential for financial return, we've always thought that, that change stories, business transformation can generate very exciting returns. And if I sort of stay with Centrica that you mentioned as an example, you know, here's a company that two and a half years ago had a, a an over-levered balance sheet going nowhere, losing customers, you know, on a consistent and serial basis, regulatory intervention had, had damaged returns. And here we are with a new management, new strategy two and a half years later, balance sheet is down to sort of net cash. If you ignore the pension, uh, the pension deficit shrinking all the time because interest rates are going up. Um, you know, and the way that we think about how we discount future liabilities means that, that the sort of the, the liability here and now is shrinking. Um, they have capital to invest. The regulatory structure that was in place has collapsed um, and has caused a complete hollowing out of the very competitive energy supply industry that was going on out there. So Centrica, from having lost clients, has taken on 770,000 new customers last year, um, most through the supply of last resort process that the regulator has in place. But, you know, we've gone from 70 sort of five-ish suppliers down to 20-ish suppliers. Um, and it's um, going to be a less competitive market, you know, uh, in future, but more opportunity to grow their market share. There will, of course, always be a, um, a regulated discipline to make sure that these companies don't generate an excess return. But the problem was no one was making any return let alone an excess return. And so, you know, and 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 look at the, the earnings profile of that company. It did 20p of earnings four or five years ago through a, you know, a set of management um, poor actions and then external circumstances. They fell to sort of 3p of earnings, really. Um, and now, you know, we look to next year. I was just looking at a Morgan Stanley note this morning, actually, uh, with a 13 pence per share earnings forecast for the next two years in 23 and 24. Um, the shares at 77p, it just just uh, don't don't bear any relation to the earnings progression. So you know, buying it on a very low single digit PE, you know, here's why I think you can make exciting financial returns from sort of business turnaround situations in less than exciting companies. Um, and I can't think of a better current example than 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 Centrica, but there are many in the portfolio. 
Now, I know a big part of your process is um, looking for positive change. And one of those positive changes is often a change in management. Um, so how do you assess a, man- a new management team when they come in? What kind of char- characteristics are you looking for? That's a really good question. We get asked that question all the time um, by our client base. Um, you know, le- le- the characteristics of a turnaround do always start with with the asset, you know, the quality of the asset um, that we're buying. So we, it would be remiss of me in answering the quest- this question not to mention that, 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 that a great deal of time and effort is spent on the quality of the asset, longevity of cash flows, you know, is it in structural decline? If not, why not? Um, you know, and and then sort of are there hidden assets? Are there hidden growth characteristics? And you know that the quality of the investments that have generated a, a strong return for this fund over time have managed to navigate from um, being sort of deemed to be going backwards, maybe in structural decline, can't see a future for the company, so put a low rating on the cash flows to through a set of management strategic changes, external changes, environment changes a little bit, but the combination of all those things to being a sort of top right, all actually growing in a structural way um, and generating good returns in excess of cost of capital, reinvesting in the business at high uh, or good marginal rates of return that drives a sort of ongoing growth. And, And if that wasn't there or valued to be there in the rating previously, that transition can be be very powerful. But we, we are big believers in in management. We're big believers in the ability of management to to, to take good decisions. You know, it's it's often management uh, bad management decisions that alert us to opportunities. So the opposite should also be true. And I think when we when we interview the management teams, talk to them, get to know them. Um, we're looking for certain clues. We're looking for capital allocation discipline as an absolute um, first uh, and foremost priority for us. Um, so that maybe some historic skill sets around how they manage capital allocation, how they think about return on capital, cash flow. Um, we try to get into the mindset. Um, you know, I'm drawn to a very good book that I've read historically called The Outsiders, which is all about some of the best capital allocators uh, as CEOs in history and what a, what a great effect they can have on the companies that they run. Um, we like to see uh, management teams that act like an owner of the business, not necessarily um, just through actively participating in the shares and the equity of the company, but the way that they think um, about the business, about running the business, um, acting like an owner is a, is a core part, not taking short-term decisions, for example, taking decisions for the best of the business, uh, for its future health and sustainability. Uh, we look for people with a strong say-do ratio. We love that term. We love the phrase. It comes from one of our CEOs at a business called Convertech. He said, look, I came into this business and, it, and the say-do ratio was very poor. We said a lot, we did nothing. Um, you know, and we, we like individuals that back up what they say and they don't say it whether they're going to be able to achieve it. So under promises as well. Then we look for sort of fo- simple things. Are you going to focus the business, simplify it? Um, um, are you going to manage the balance sheet more effectively um, so it can be a, a, a source of optionality for growth? 
Uh, are you going to think about being a more efficient version of yourself? I, how do you think about your go-to-market strategy, how you price, how you treat your customer base, how you um, think about the value that you provide to your customer base, customer base? We investigate reinvestment strategy. You know, How will you reinvest any capital that you release from the company? Um, we prefer organic versus big M&A. We don't mind bolt-on. It needs to be structured, thought through, planned methodically. Uh, we've had a bit, very bad experience on big M&A. Um, qualitatively we like people uh, persons but you know true leaders uh, that you want to get out of bed in the morning and work with and you know for and uh, that can sort of you know encourage you to think like that we like ordered and structured minds uh, and people that demystify the investment case and just think about a clear narrative Um, you know some of the things that you do to turn a business around are not they're not difficult necessarily, easy for us to say, sitting behind a spreadsheet and a screen, we don't run the businesses, but you know, simple decisions I think are always the most effective ones and, and quick, clean decisions with enough thought going into why you should be doing it. Um, but back to the say-do ratio, don't, don't tie yourself up in knots, you know, trying to cover off every angle get on with it there's a job to be done so that gives an insight into what we're looking for and um you know those that have managed the businesses in the portfolio that have done best over time exhibit all of those characteristics james and what has been the best turnaround story of your career uh well the the ones that have been best managed funny enough that have had um uh, very good uh, asset bases to work with to begin with. So the, the one that springs to my mind uh, first is 3i Group, which we put into the portfolio in 2009, post the financial crisis, post a rights issue, which itself was caused by the fact that they returned lots of capital to investors in 2007, late 2007, pre-financial crisis, got overexcited, management change, strategic change, um, rights issue. Um, and an asset base that was trading at a material discount to, to NAV, uh, uh, you know, it was 40%, I think, at the time, and an NAV base that was starting to stabilize and grow, you know, and then actually we supported a further management change in 2011, a chap called Simon Burrows took the helm as CEO and has been nothing short of outstanding for that company as a capital allocator. He definitely acted like an owner he bought in uh, financially and continued to do so for many years but he, he restructured the company simplified it 120 assets down to roughly 30 to 40 putting growth capital behind the assets that he and the team had a very strong and clear view would be winners one of which was a business called action which has become one of the preeminent um, value retailers in the whole of europe uh, it's been a phenomenal success story. Um, you know, you've got to deal with what's in front of you. And he saw a, a deck of cards. He didn't buy action to begin with in 2011 when he joined. Uh, they only subsequently bought bought their first stake in the asset. But he knew, as the team did, that it needed more capital. And it went from sort of 3% of assets to, you know, well in excess of 15% to uh, now I think it's sort of 40, 50% of the NAV. Uh, second, I'll say is, uh, oh, and, and I might add that the cash returns from that company have meant that when we bought it at roughly three pounds um, back in 2009, we've had all of that back through dividends and um, we've had four times plus our money in sort of capital return. And, you know, that's a good risk to take um, and has been a good return. Second, Electro Components, very similar. Lindsley Ruth, who's the CEO of that business, in, uh, went in, I think, in 2015, executed a phenomenal turnaround. Um, everything that we said 
um, you know, efficiency, balance sheet management, reinvestment for growth, but in a structured way, thinking logically um, about how they go to market, who who their customer is, what they need to do for their customer, digital first strategy, uh, simple strategy, um, you know, and the business had, you know, uh, exhibited more control over pricing and has gone from sort of a, a business that was seeing declining gross margins, declining operating margins year in and year out. Uh, and sort of flat sales growth has gone the other way. Um, um, phenomenal sales growth um, um, globally as well. So it's been more geographically diverse and at higher margins, a more efficient, higher drop through gross margins have started to go back up. So, you know, good management there again. Um, I won't labor the the sort of ideas for the future, those are two from the past, but, you know, in the portfolio, and this is not an investment decision for your clients necessarily, but, you know, three ideas I might pick from the portfolio today that exhibit the same characteristics, Landsec uh, in the UK property market, um, Pearson in the global education market, and uh, Ricardo, which is a UK listed energy consultant, all three with new management teams, new strategies, and we've got reasonably high conviction that they will they will do good things with those companies. And we saw a lot of M&A last year. How did that impact the fund? Uh, and do you see M&A continuing this year as well? Oh, I might deal with the last, the second question first. I'm not sure it will continue to the same degree. There was um, a very clear arbitrage available in global markets in, and certainly in UK markets that, um, you know, with interest rates and and, and um, sort of monetary policy where it was through 2020, 2021 as a result of the pandemic, um, you know, and the distresses and, you know, stresses and strains we've had from that, um, you know, there were a lot of very cheap companies trading on very high earnings yields, cash flow yields, um, at, but the ability to borrow money at um, at very low rates uh, for long terms, and so it was only natural that you would. And, and it was in the UK that that arbitrage was was very clear, clearer than anywhere else in in global markets, really. Um, so it was only natural that you might find coming out of the pandemic, when you know we realised it was less of a demand problem, more of a supply problem, um, that money might find its way into into a certain cohort of stocks that had been harshly treated by the pandemic. How did it affect? And I don't think the same. You know, it's the same arbitrage is not there to the same degree today, James. You know, because interest rates are moving, long term rates are moving. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we sit here today, it's early March, I think the 1st of March, you know, there's lots going on in the world on a macro basis that can change things very quickly, valuations are moving, um, you know, interest rate expectations are moving, but I don't think the same arbitrage exists today. As it all related to the fund in 2021, it was, and coming out of 20, it was pretty remarkable, really. I mean, this is a fund that that over a 12-month period, historically, a rolling 12 months had never had more than two bids. We had 10, of which nine consummated in a rolling 12-month period. Um, it was quite extraordinary. Um, it shows you how much value was in the portfolio at that particular point in time. Um, it was 
surprising to us to some degree. But then when we looked at the valuations, we looked at the characteristics of the companies that got bid for, not so surprising at all. And it was those characteristics that were so interesting to us and, and linked to the buyers of those assets. Um, you know, these were these were businesses that had infrastructure-like characteristics. You know, they had big property bases or big asset bases, manufacturing bases. They had long-term cash flows. They, you know, you could look at them and say, yeah, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years time, that set of assets is still probably going to be generating a reasonably strong cash flow. Um, as long as management do the right things to keep those asset bases uh, fresh and invest in them, you know, and though that to some degree there was inflation protection amongst those asset bases as well. They were all cheap relative to their book value. They were trading at price to book discounts and the buyers on the flip side were all long-term capital. They were um, very high quality private equity, I would say, that weren't thinking about the very short term uh, or like in the case of Urban and Civic, uh, they were the Wellcome Trust, very long term investors. Um, they were infrastructure like investors, uh, thought processes. And I think that was really interesting. Uh, and where they were private equity investors, some of these private equity houses had sold um, non-real asset companies to stock markets in IPOs, you know, tech companies or biotech companies or, you know, go-go structural growth companies for, you know, in the energy transition, say, uh, at high valuations and were recycling their capital in existing listed companies at really low valuations and sort of more traditional companies that you might think are the less exciting. And we thought that was really interesting. So good characteristics of the fund, I think a good endorsement of what the fund does, how it tries to generate value uh, from its investment decisions. Um, uh, yeah. Were you happy with the bids you got though? I mean, or do you feel Not in like, all cases. No, it's a really good you know, point. You had to let go of some things which you perhaps wouldn't have liked. It's a really good question. Um, you know, no, I don't think so. And, you know, I think a lot of those bids uh, were at, discounts to what we thought were fair value and i think it's um you know it's it's a sad state of affairs that some of the boards were willing to back those those bids and were so readily willing in our view to, to back those bids and not play a, a a harder more machiavellian game with the potential acquirers to try and get better value we had to start so you know absent the boards doing it who is it incumbent on to do that to protect shareholders it's incumbent on us, uh, the more institutional-minded shareholders that take a longer-term view. Um, and we did that. We stepped up to the plate and, and we would do it again. And, you know, in the case of three companies, um, we were very vocal. Uh, in the case of St. Modwin, in the case of DMGT, um, you know, in, in particular, um, and in both cases, we... You know, we, along with uh, others in the case of DMGT, I don't think any others in the case of St. Modwin, managed to squeeze a bit of extra value from the acquirers. But it was tough. It's tough to negotiate when you're, you're sort of, you feel alone. But we do it again. And, and it's our job as, as, as stewards of capital to do that. And we take that job very, very seriously. Well, that's been really interesting as always, Alex. Um, thank you very much for that. That's okay. You're very welcome. Thank you. As we've highlighted in this interview, the Jackham UK Dynamic Fund targets companies undergoing a period of change, taking advantage of this transition to deliver long-term growth returns. Having built up an excellent long-term track record, Alex's process has shown itself to be successful in numerous market conditions. To learn more about the Jackham UK Dynamic Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
Please remember we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Caliber's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Caliber's research team only.